Hi, I'm Leola. I'm a sacred intimacy mentor and muse and the host of this podcast. Talk Tantra to Me introduces a playful perspective on sacred sexuality. My intention in this podcast is to integrate intimacy and spirituality, empowering you to reclaim your eroticism. It is my mission to inspire you to let go of shame, fear, and limiting beliefs to be present as your highest self in every moment. Thanks so much for tuning in. Now, let's talk Tantra. Welcome to episode 60 of Talk Tantra to Me. It is such an honor to be holding space for this divine knowledge to make its way into your ears and lifestyle. Today I'm going to be chatting about a somewhat controversial concept and that is conscious consumption. I'm going to be sharing my perspective on alcohol, drugs, and plant medicine. This relationship with mind-altering substances has been very complicated for me. It's been something I struggled with for a long time, and I do feel that now I have a really healthy relationship with these substances, and I'm going to be sharing kind of how I got there, but it definitely evolved a lot as my spirituality developed as well. And I recognized as I started to enter the more spiritual world and, you know, get more friends in this space of wellness and mindfulness, etc., I felt that there was a lot of shame around using some of these mind-altering substances, especially alcohol, which is something that I grew up around a lot of and up until that point was enjoying quite a bit. Um, and then there's superiority around other ones like, you know, vilifying things like using marijuana or ayahuasca in various circles. And to me, this was really confusing because nearly all spiritual lineages and many ancient civilizations have used some kind of plant medicine, you know, in ritual settings far, far back, right? And when I say plant medicine, I include, you know, things like wine and beer and whiskey. Those are all plants that can be used medicinally as well, but also talking about things like, you know, ayahuasca, uh, San Pedro, the cactus, um, boga, magic mushrooms, um, you know, marijuana, all different sorts of plant medicines. And then you can also look at the things like chemical therapy, which we'll touch on in a bit. But, you know, looking at things like plant medicine, you had, you know, the wine with the lotus flower in Egypt that was used, you know, almost as like a hallucinogenic beverage in ancient Egypt. And then, you know, you had beer in Africa that was used in the tribal settings. You have ayahuasca, tobacco, etc. So many plant medicines have been used in Aztec and Central South American cultures. They call uh, magic mushrooms are are the flesh of the gods. Cacao is the food of the gods. And then you also have things like mescaline or San Pedro. Um, and then you have things like, you know, even in Christianity or Catholicism, you have wine at communion, right? You know, the blood of Christ is what we're representing here. Uh, in ancient India, there was lots of use of hemp in marijuana. You know, they were not so into the alcohol, but they were very, very prominent users of marijuana. Even under the, the witch traditions, you have, you know, wine, Wiccan, you know, rituals. We have a boga used as the coming of age ceremony in East Africa. Even, you know, monks in castles and cathedrals through Europe have made liquor, wine, and meads for centuries. So you can see like, the breadth of use in, um, in these cultures. But there's one thing that these cultures have in common that's not so 
um, not so infused into our modern day culture. And that is intention. A lot of these uh, cultures are using these substances very intentionally, or that's how they've been written about or presented. That being said, we're going to go into intention a little bit deeper as we progress in this podcast. But I also wanted to touch on, you know, in the West, we're, we're coming into a time of using chemical therapy, you know, things like LSD, ketamine, you know, I've experienced and witnessed MDMA firsthand as well. You know, there's lots of different, um, you know, spaces that these, these, uh, these substances are being used both legally and illegally. They're being tested. We're in a really interesting time for that as well. But because this is a Tantra podcast, I wanted to look at these concepts through a Tantric lens. And the cool thing about Tantra is that, in my opinion and awareness, you know, living a tantric lifestyle can look very differently, you know, according to each individual. Uh, and if you'd like to get, you know, a little bit deeper into my perspective of tantra and how, you know, tantra looks different for each person, it's really about touching into your highest truth, you know, looking at invoking intention and really being present for each and every moment. And I go into depth on kind of those practices and that approach to life in um, episode 15 of this podcast called Tantra 101, New World Intimacy Through Old World Modalities. So definitely check that one out if you're looking to get a little bit of a broader scope of what it means to live a tantric lifestyle and how you can curate that uh, based on your your desires and your needs and your preferences uh, to live a life that is expansive and juicy and growth-oriented. That being said, you know, again, we're going to come back to this element of intention but I first want to look at the classic perspective of Tantra. So this is kind of taking my perspective out of it, just giving you the facts of what is seen in the, you know, more Hinduistic perspective of Tantra in ancient India. So again, there are so many different lenses and lineages of Tantra to look at, but within the Hindu perspective, you have something called left-hand Tantra and right-hand Tantra. So the idea here is that left-hand Tantra is the more feminine, right-hand is the more masculine. So left-hand is more about, you know, the human experience in being and expressing, whereas the right-hand is more about consciousness. So on the left-hand Tantra path, you're including things that are sort of taboo, ritual practices that often um, are conflicting with conservative Hinduisms. This includes things like sexual rituals, consumption of meat, alcohol, and other intoxicants. Okay. That being said, it's still done with intention in these paths, in the, in the left-hand Tantra path. Um, it's just this idea that there is no distinction between pure and pure. Everything is sacred. Everything in the human experience is sacred. There's no good, bad, right, and wrong. It's a very holistic and grounded expression of, of living. Again, though, there's still that theme of using these experiences to transcend, right? So left-hand Tantra could also be compared with red Tantra. I haven't done a specific episode all about red, white, and pink Tantra, but I definitely do intend to. If you'd like to go a little bit deeper into that path um, of red Tantra or the left-hand Tantra, you're welcome to Google a bit more. 
Uh, that being said, I recommend creating your own path, which is something that I've done, and I really feel like I have a mix of the left-hand tantra and the and the right-hand tantra. So we're going to go into the right-hand tantra a little deeper here. So right-hand tantra applies to the more traditional Hindu spiritual practices, including um, asceticism, which is a severe self-discipline and almost an avoidance of all forms of indulgence or hedonism, and it's typically for religious religious reasons. So you see things like, you know, the very strict masculine, more like format to your day. So waking up at 5 a.m. and meditating and sitting in this, in this consciousness, right? And like having lots of self-discipline. Whereas left hand is more fluid and more about experiencing all the things. So with the left hand, or sorry, the right hand tantra, you're going to see a lot more things like yoga and meditation and use of mantras and yantras and mandalas and such. So it's a lot more of a structured approach to, to tantra. And this, this path, whereas the right, or the left hand path is more of the red tantra, the right hand path is more of the white tantra. I definitely prefer a mix of both, and that's definitely something that I work with individually, and I hold myself to that as long as it feels good for me, and it's also something that I encourage for the people that I work with. I encourage them to, again, reclaim their power, find their own path. I'm just here to give you all the options and all the tools. So nevertheless, both left-hand Tantra and right-hand Tantra have the intention to transcend and to attain spiritual enlightenment, whereas the left-hand or the more red Tantra, the more feminine, is considered the fastest route. It's albeit more difficult and more dangerous because there's so much more risk, there's so much more temptation to get stuck in that sensual ego you know, addictive sphere, where sphere, whereas white tantra or the right hand tantra path is more about that monk energy so it takes a little bit longer because you're really just working with your own energy you're really going into this you know inner experience um and you're not tempting yourself with lovers and with alcohol and you know the the human experience in general so applying this to, you know, going even deeper into a more Western perspective of how we've adapted the left hand versus the right hand path, oftentimes in the spiritual communities, the left hand path, which is again, the more feminine path, the more red tantra path, uh, in the West, the left hand path is interpreted as a little bit more like magic, but like occult, sometimes seen even as like black magic. Um, it can kind of be looked down upon because of the perceived uh, risks involved, whereas the right-hand path is more like esoteric and it's thought to be just like this benev- benevolent, you know, compassionate, white magic, white light, all light and love sort of experience. And maybe you've experienced this with practitioners. I think that the white light community and the, you know, right-hand path can seem super, um, beautiful and very endearing and you want it because it's like so pure feeling. But in reality, for, for what I recognize is there is no pure and impure. I can have a very pure experience while also having a very human experience. And that's where I choose to live. I found that the more I tried to go into the white path or the, the right-hand path, the more I found myself, um, having shadow explosions unconsciously. Whereas when I followed the left-hand path, I was more holistically going into my shadows from a place of full acceptance and love. 
That being said, I still have a lot of, you know, white hand or white hand, right hand white Tantra practices that are huge for me. And I have days where I'm really living in that space. And I have days where I'm really living in the mess of being a human. And to me, that's the beauty of creating your own life that you love, that makes you turned on by just being. So now I know you're all dying to know my perspective to go a little bit deeper into how this applies to sex, pleasure, medicines, alcohol, all the things. Um, so for me, when it comes to anything in life, especially mind altering substances and experiences, which include sex, pleasure, and all plant medicines and alcohol and chemical medicines, etc., it's all about intention. It's all about intention because these substances are mind altering. They are very easy to abuse which I've 100% done in my life, especially with alcohol. But the way around this or the way to avoid this danger or this risk is to have intention, to go into it with a sense of how am I being in this? And again, intention is not about a goal. Um, goals are about doing something, whereas intentions about are about being. What is this, what is melding with this spirit the spirit of the plant or the spirit of the alcohol or whatever it is. What am I being with this? What am I, what am I hoping to bring into my being? Right? So again, they're very easy to abuse. Um, but according to, you know, some philosophers, ancient texts, historians, uh, you know, we have, we have alcohol that's often called a spirit. And, you know, some people believe that that it's called a spirit because alcohol was meant to invigorate the spirit, to enliven the spirit. Uh, and then you have other, you know, words such as alcohol and alcohol is believed to come from Arabic. Alcohol, alcohol <laughs> is, uh, is the Arabic word for spirit. So etymologically, that's where we're kind of getting the word alcohol as well. So you're really getting the sense of like, oh, like, Alcohol is a spirit. Is it spiritual? I don't know. What does this mean? But I don't think that it's a coincidence that there's this overlapping word, right? So whether you believe alcohol or spirits were believed to liven up your spirits or call in spirits, um, there's also a belief that it's about becoming one with the spirit of the plant in that everything is energy. So when we're consuming the plant, we are becoming one with the energy, there's also the belief more in the white light, you know, culture that when you are imbibing this spirit, you are allowing demons to come in or you're allowing other spirits to come in or you're allowing that spirit to take over you in a negative way. So again, you can see there's lots of different perspectives on why it's called spirit or alcohol. But at the end of the day, alcohol tends to be particularly problematic in terms of being a quote-unquote plant medicine because it is so societally acceptable and even encouraged to abuse. It is the most abundant and easily attainable substance on the list of quote-unquote plant medicines. Um, I mean, if you turn on your TV and you're watching any, you know, like classic sitcom, whether it's like, you know, How I Met Your Mother or The Simpsons or like whatever it is, like, most sex in the city, another great one. There's always alcohol there and it's almost always being used, you know, pretty heavily as well. And it's like a very regular part of people's lives. And that's not to say that I don't enjoy a glass of wine pretty much every day, but there's definitely a level of 
where, where is the line here? Where is the line? For myself, I've used alcohol to drown my feelings on countless occasions, especially in high school and college, um, which I think is when we're most encouraged to just, you know, go for it. And I think that there's also an element of don't do this, don't do this, and then do this, do this, do this, you know, um, this, this sense of being held back from doing something. And then the allure is that much more sexy for us. Um, but when it comes down to it, that period of my life was incredibly traumatic. And much of that came from being in situations where I was consuming unconsciously um, and way too much and around people that also were, you know, abusing the substance. And it got us all into some pretty you know, damaging experience. I've watched alcohol severely damage people I love. It's, you know, quote unquote damaged me (laughs) in some ways. That being said, I recognize that that was a part of my path and all of those things, all of those traumatic experiences that came from overindulging in alcohol were learning lessons for me. And they're things that have made me who I am today. They've made me much more equipped to even have this conversation right now to come from the full spectrum of seeing what is it like to abuse? What is it like to honor? To really understand both parts of the path. But essentially, most of my early experiences with alcohol had zero intention or very dark intentions. (laughs) Um, God, I remember being in places of like, I just want to get fucked up tonight, you know? And to me, like, that's so wild now. But here we are. So that being said, you can see the, you know, really abusive side of using alcohol, but I've also had experiences where alcohol in small to moderate quantities has allowed me to fully embrace my emotional state with intention. For example, I'll often enjoy a glass of wine in the evening before journaling, and I'll have some of like my most, um, esoteric and beautiful and prophetic poetry come through uh or before painting I feel like having a glass of wine encourages me to loosen up to have fun to meld with this like very playful part of myself this very emotional being that I'm expressing through my art you know it's also brought me closer to the people I love in moments where we're consciously invoking a toast and cheersing over champagne or a bottle of wine or a beer and a gorgeous meal and it's really this opportunity to come into a space where we're all sharing the spirit together. We're all consciously choosing to be in this energy together. It's also, you know, been an opportunity for me to ground back into my body, into a very heady experience. Sometimes after doing a one-on-one session with someone in Tantra, and it was like very draining for me. I'll have a glass of wine. I really feel like it brings this like spirit back into me a little bit. Um, and I enjoy that. Other times it's very much a heady experience. And I'm like, like especially when I'll do, um, you know, Tantra nights with my partner or past partners, I will, will have this incredible experience where we're like in the fucking clouds and it's amazing and we're enjoying it. But I'm also starting to feel this draw of like, okay, I'm ready to come back down now. Having a glass of red wine after can be a super grounding experience as well. So you can see here, like with each of these, there was really intent and intention, whether it's something like grounding or going deeper into my emotional state rather than using alcohol to cover up my emotional state, which is definitely a, a very common use of alcohol, you know, using alcohol to to share this experience with other people, okay? I also love, like, the art of creating spirits uh, and alcohol and beer. I think that 
you know, I've, I've been very lucky to have traveled a lot and to have gone to so many wineries all over the world. And like, I'm actually coming on this memory of probably the most spiritual person I've ever met who was the owner of this winery that I went to in Turkey. And I remember like his calm, beautiful energy and thinking like, that's what I want to be. And I think that it like being in that space of creating these libations can be um, a very spiritual experience as well, coming to one with the plant. And it's almost alchemy to bring something like a fruit or a wheat into something that is mind altering. That's like an incredibly powerful um, path to me. So essentially what I'm saying is before picking up the class or the medicine or whatever it is, ask what is my intention? What is my intention? What do I want to be with this? How can I go deeper into my human experience, into my emotions, rather than using this uh, substance to escape my reality and drown myself, right? I want to go briefly into the health effects of alcohol, um, the science, if you will. And the cool thing about pretty much everything in this world is if you look hard enough, you can find the science um, for both sides of the story. And so I'm not going to like go too deep into what the stats are. There's definitely, you know, um, there's definitely evidence that alcohol can affect your sleep and it's bad for your liver and like all of the things. That being said, I want to share evidence of the health benefits of alcohol, my personal favorite um, little uh, study that was done comes from the study of the blue zones. So if you're not familiar with the blue zones, these are areas of the earth where there are a incredibly high number of centurions, centurions meaning people that have lived over a hundred. They're called blue zones because they're often in places where there's like the ocean or water nearby. So I don't remember all the blue zones. One is in Japan, one is in Sardinia, one is in California, one's in Costa Rica. There's a few more, but essentially we they, there were studies there because People wanted to know how are people in these areas living so long? And the cool thing was that they found that all the centurions, all the people that were in this study were avid consumers of alcohol. In fact, the study showed that if you didn't consume alcohol, you were less likely to reach that happy age of 100. Uh, so the study showed that you could have, you know, one or two drinks a day um, in the blue zones. Uh, so, you know, drinking moderately and regularly, uh, that doesn't mean that you're, you know, saving up all of your drinks through the week so that you have 14 on Saturday, but the key here was how they did it. So again, it was very moderate, only a couple glasses, no binging. It was also always either with food and or in company. So a few, you know, quick facts there, and you can see that the there's a lot of intention there. I know, again, going back to the idea of sharing a glass of wine with friends or family, you know, can be a very beautiful, like, experience of, of bringing up your spirit. And also, to me, like, having a glass of wine is such a beautiful part of a meal to use it to, like, accentuate the flavors. It's really the sensual eating practice taken to another level. So it's definitely understanding that moderate alcohol consumption, again, especially with meal or with friends or family, can help you not only de-stress and loosen up, but also live longer, which is super cool, in my opinion, and something that I deeply appreciate. 
Uh, I think that one of the things that I've recognized in this community and with myself was that it got to the point that I was like judging myself so harshly for having a glass of wine that, and I'm not saying like I was binging, like I was done with that by this point, but like maybe I'd like hang out with my spiritual friends, um, you know, during the day and then I'd go home and I'd make myself this nice luxurious dinner and I'd have a glass of wine and I would feel like, Ooh, uh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Like, is this, am I, am I being a detriment to myself by enjoying this based on what my friends have said about alcohol, which I definitely had like a lot of pressure. I felt from, you know, people in the community to stop drinking entirely. Um, and so, yeah, I had a lot of judgment for that. And honestly, that judgment was so much more toxic than having the fucking glass of wine, (laughs) you know? So I think coming back to that, obviously there's a healthy level of, you know, shame or, um, self-judgment when you're imbibing to a place that's obviously affecting your physical health, whether that is causing, you know, an insane hangover the next day or affecting your bowels or your ability to show up for the people that you love in your life, or even, you know, some of the actions that you might've taken from drinking too much. Like, I think it's definitely okay and normal to have shame for that. And that's, that's a part of your, your inner critic telling you like, Hey, we need to make some adjustments and this is a good thing, right? We can embrace those feelings of shame and make some changes, but that doesn't mean that, um, you need to completely stop consuming permanently. And it also doesn't mean that you need to judge yourself for having a very small amount or a moderate amount of, of spirit or alcohol or wine or plot medicine, whatever it is. Um, so that was my deep dive into alcohol because I think that that's the thing that probably most people have the most questions about and it's the most relatable again, because it is the most, um, easily attainable substances on the list here. That being said, interestingly in Tantra and spiritual communities, I've noticed a lot of vilifying other plant medicines and even abusing other plant medicines you know, putting things like ayahuasca and San Pedro and marijuana uh, up on a pedestal. And it's not to say that these substances don't all deserve their accolades because they 100% do. But here, intention is just as important and even more so is integration. So when it comes to, you know, plant medicines, uh, I feel that there are so many people just like running to South America to do or into the Hollywood Hills <laughs> to do ayahuasca or DMT or whatever plant medicine they're feeling called to. And again, I don't think that that's bad, but I also think it's really important to really consider what's your why. What's your why for imbibing in such an experience because if you do a plant medicine before you're ready or if you do plant medicine in a container that is not safe and doesn't feel purely really good for you you can re-traumatize yourself which is kind of the opposite of what you're trying to do many people are doing ayahuasca or san pedro with the intention of having an ego death or clearing trauma or getting more connected to spirit or whatever it is but if you're not doing it intelligently um 
then you can re-traumatize yourself and that's not very fun. Uh, thankfully, I haven't been in that situation when it comes to plant medicines, but I have re-traumatized myself in other mind-altering experiences, which I chatted about in episode 44, I believe, of this podcast, which was called My Tantra Teacher Sexually um, Abused Me. I think that's the title. Uh, and again, so any mind-altering experience that you're going into, I go into a lot of depth in that episode about what to be aware of, how to set intention, how to listen to your intuition, how to make sure you're safe before going into a container like that. That being said, um, if you'd like to do a traditional plant medicine ceremony, I highly encourage you to wait until you really feel called. Like spirit is saying, it is time, go do this. You're like, I feel really aligned with this, whatever. Don't just do it to check a box or to say you've done it. If you're just invited offhand to a ceremony, it's not just saying yes because, oh yeah, I've never done that before. Or, oh yeah, it worked last time. I'd really like to do it again. It's like, no, come into like, what are, what are you, what is your intention? What are you trying to be with this medicine? Okay. I've done a couple of plant medicine ceremonies. I'm not going to go into all the details, um, but things like San Pedro, Hoppe, uh, medicinal mushrooms, but I haven't yet felt the call to do ayahuasca. So I haven't done it. I haven't done it. Uh, the closest I got was when I was in Ecuador for a Tantra training. It was a um, yoga, Tantra, and shamanism training uh, with Durga's Tiger School in Ecuador. Great experience overall. Um, definitely some things were off, which I'll go into here. But uh, I did do a couple of plant medicines while I was there. Uh, that I did feel really called to, one of them being San Pedro. I had been called San Pedro for a while, so when that opportunity came up, I was like, yes, it is time, and it was an incredible experience for me, no regrets. That being said, I also had the opportunity to do ayahuasca while I was there. And you know what? As I said, I wasn't really feeling called to it. On top of that, I was about to start my period, and many of the tribes do not allow menstruating women into the uh, the settings of a plant medicine ceremony, which, little side fact, the reason that they give is because the women on their moon cycle are so powerful. It's not about being dirty, which many of us Westerners believe, like, why wouldn't they let them in? They, they must be, you know, saying the women are dirty, whatever. The reason that they give is because the women are so powerful, which is true when you're menstruating, it's some of your most uh, intuitive times of your cycle. You're very connected to spirit during that time. Um, so interesting. That being said, um, it was very tempting to go do this ayahuasca, uh, training because it was going to be in an indigenous tribal setting in the Amazon, like couldn't get any more legit. Right. And I'm just coming off of this incredible high of the training. But it all kind of just fell into, into play that it's like, no, it's not time. Great. Interestingly, though, my friend Paige uh, from the same school decided to go forward with that training. And she shares her whole experience in episode 45 of this podcast. And that podcast is titled My Shaman Sexually Assaulted Me. Yes, that happened on that ayahuasca training. And Paige does a beautiful job of vulnerably and authentically sharing her experience with ayahuasca. The really special thing is it wasn't her first experience with ayahuasca. So she was able to differentiate the medicine from the experience and the people, the shaman that was um, 
you know, giving out this medicine. And she has beautiful things to say about ayahuasca, about its healing capabilities. But she really asserts the importance of knowing your boundaries before going into that into that sort of setting, doing your research, um, you know, having a high level of discernment, making making those boundaries clear with your facilitators as well, being very much in a space of understanding what's going to happen step by step um, and being able to speak up for yourself if things shift. The problem is, though, when you're in a mind altered state, especially, you know, induced by something like ayahuasca, it can be very, very complicated. So that's why, again, it's really important to step into these spaces with a high level of awareness. Uh, not that Paige didn't, but I think that sometimes we don't know until we know, you know, and <laughs> that's sort of what happened. She learned the hard way, but I, I definitely recommend listening. If you are interested in doing a plant medicine ceremony, I recommend listening to that episode so you can get a sense of what sort of things to look out for and ask so that you don't have to learn the hard way like she did. Um, and again, this, these sorts of things occur no matter if you are in a more traditional shamanic setting, you know, in the Amazon jungle, or if it's in a more modified experience in the States or even in a medicinal, like, more Western setting. Um, And this happens across the board, regardless of the type of plant medicine or chemical medicine that you are imbibing. Uh, So just keep that in mind. I think, I mean, there's definitely a big part of this community that says, like, only do plant medicine with the tribes and go deep into those spaces. And I totally agree that that sounds like amazing. And ideally that is what makes the most sense. That being said, um, it can be really valuable to consider what is going to serve you best. And I know that there are other, uh, there are other plant medicine, um, communities in these areas that really infuse both the Eastern and the Western perspective. They have the, the, the tribe leaders, uh, you know, being the ones that are, um, passing around the medicine and giving it out while they also have people that are holding space that are maybe not involved with the tribe or they have people that are involved in the integration that are, you know, psychologists that studied, you know, in a more traditional Western setting. So, do your research. I don't particularly have any recommendations because it's not something that I have done myself aside from doing the, uh, the plant medicine ceremonies, um, you know, in some very small containers here in the States, uh, even just with myself as well. Um, and then, you know, with the tribe in Ecuador. And the cool thing about that one was that we were all together in a group throughout the entire, you know, ceremony. So there was less of an opportunity for something like a sexual assault to take place or otherwise. So that being said, going a little bit deeper, you know, after the plant medicine ceremony, what's also really important is integration. In the space of mind-altering experiences, we often witness life-changing perspectives and we're looking at the world in a completely new way. But what is that worth if you don't know how to integrate it into your day-to-day life once you're back, right? Uh, So it's very important, number one, to have a lifestyle that will support you in the process. And this is a big part of my work. Okay. Number two, especially with your first plant medicine experiences, I definitely recommend having someone to hold space for that integration, whether that's a coach, whether that's your shaman, whether that's 
a therapist, whatever it is, um, you know, as you go a little bit deeper, you can take a little bit more of your integration upon yourself. That's definitely something that I've done. That being said, I'm speaking from my experience. So you might be a little bit different, you know, definitely tapping into what works for you. But, you know, if you are looking for someone that you'd like to step into creating a lifestyle that will support you in the process, because if, especially if you're going to go with the intention of, you know, integrating on a more solo level, it's important to have the lifestyle that supports that. And that, again, is a big part of my work. So I want to take this moment to direct you to my website for all my current offerings to see what might be available in that space. It's www.talktantratome.com. And usually under the work with me tab or the events tab, you can see all of my current opportunities for one-to-one mentorship or Tantra life coaching courses, in-person body work, uh, and medicine sessions, events, etc. So that kind of wraps me up for today. I want to say thank you so much for tuning in, for opening yourself up to the idea of sacred sexuality. If this podcast resonates with you, I'd love to hear it in the reviews. It means the world to me to hear your perspective. And your reviews also help this podcast become a bit more relevant in search results, which means that more people are able to benefit from the wisdom of spiritual intimacy. And if you'd like to take an even more proactive role in awakening the collective to sacred sexuality, I'd love it if you screenshotted this podcast and shared it on your social media. And if you do so, please tag me so that I can thank you personally. With so much gratitude and love, have a sexy and spiritual day, and I'll catch you next week on Talk Taunter to Me. Ta-ta!